For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How is everybody? Now, we've been doing a bit of fashion and science stuff recently, and I love learning about it. Next up is biotech. It's a hot topic, and there are some fascinating players in the space, but surely the most talked about is Californian company Bolt Threads with their spider silk. It was famously first used by Stella McCartney. Her bright yellow dress was part of the Fashion from Nature exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And you can go back and listen to episode 44 about that if you fancy. Also, the one that we mentioned here with Claire Bergkamp from Stella McCartney is episode 73. Now, as you're about to hear, we can't farm spiders. Any arachnophobes like me who are listening feel the fear. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm teasing. I promise we'll go easy on you because I couldn't actually take it if it was too graphic. That is a fact. I can remember every spider I've ever seen. (laughs) Says something about me. Told you I was frightened. Now, the team at Bolt Threads did keep quite a lot of big spiders in their HQ in order to get the very strong, sometimes stretchy silk-like fibre out of them when they were learning how to mimic the protein. I'm assured that those spiders are long gone. You're going to find out how they did it, where the science is headed, and what's next from our guest this week, who is David Breslauer, co-founder and scientist at Bolt Threads. Just don't call him Spider-Man. I tried that. (laughs) This interview is so interesting. I just can't wait to hear what you make of it. Uh, You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs Press. We've also got a new Instagram for the show, which is at The Wardrobe Crisis. Another quick mention that our awesome sustainable fashion newsletter goes out twice a week and you can sign up for that by hopping on www.thewardrobecrisis.com. Also, if you love the podcast, please do check out our Patreon page. There's a link in the show description and starting this month, we've got some shiny new benefits. We need to raise some money actually for Series 5, which starts very soon. So any support you can give is much appreciated. Okay, lab coats at the ready. Here's David. Bonjour, David. <laughs> Verrons-nous cette interview en français? No. <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. I've been reading your profile on uh, Crunchbase. Can you read it for us? That I'm turning the screen to you. Please do. Oh, my goodness. The, the profile says... This is an old profile. It's not the profile no, that's still there. But this it does say, David is the cheerful captain overseeing the Bolt Threads crew of the research and development teams. David guides the design, production, and testing of the new silk polymers and fibers with desired performance properties. His graduate research on silk during his bioengineering PhD at UC Berkeley and UCSF comes in handy as he directs long-term technical strategy. David has a unique fondness for street stencil art and can converse about it fluently with you in French. Welcome, David Breslauer. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you for having me. We're going to have a deep conversation that could be confusing about science. Oh, I hope it's not confusing. I hope I can clarify any confusion. So let's define some of these terms just quickly. What is bioengineering? Bioengineering is actually an old term in the technical world. And it's broad-based. It means a lot of things. But the origin story helps decomplexify that. It started in the 70s as the idea of how can we just simply understand the human body from engineering principles? What are the biomechanics? And that allowed us to start saying, okay, how can we start designing things, whether it be 
prosthetics, early days, bioengineering, to medical devices, instrumentation for measurements. And over the decades, the field has evolved and become so much more sophisticated. Now it means building things with biology or engineering biology. That can mean medical. And now as the field has progressed and our ability to do things scalably and on our insights into the needs of industrial materials and consumer materials has led to a huge push in manufacturing materials. So if it started with medical, what are some of its applications then that we might be familiar with? Oh, I mean, everything you see in your uh, hospital bed from the sensors that can read your heart rate, blood oxygen level to spinal implants, all the things that come down to the mechanical performance of a material, the biocompatibility, the material properties of Anything that goes in your body originated in this field of bioengineering. So when did we start to apply it to fashion? Because it seems actually quite bonkers to be talking about this in the same sentence. Absolutely. Um, It's only far more recently. Mm. It's obvious when you think about it, but for a long time, people have been talking, particularly when you think about spider silk, uh, since the 80s even, about making spider silk in an industrial way, because to this date, the only way you can get it en masse was from a web of a spider outside your house. And so once people started to know and learn how to make proteins, starting with, say, insulin, um, again, medical purposes, then it said, oh, well, spider silk is a protein. Let's make that. It turns out that that protein has a ton of unique complexities at every level that make it difficult. So it's been a challenge for decades. Okay, we're going to get into the detail around how you make Mm -hmm. or mimic spider proteins to make spider silk what you call spider silk but why let's just talk about why this whole area is such a buzz at the moment beyond what you do at bolt threads it's like if you google it as a phrase loads of things come up and i feel like if i had googled this a few years ago maybe no but you know why is i googled (laughs) why is biotech and fashion so hot right now and you know i got pages and pages right and it wasn't all about you although much of it was why now Because I think what's happened is, whereas biotech and fashion, and even in the origin of Bolt Threads, started as performance materials and just innovative new materials, as sustainability and the interest there has become far more serious as the impacts of climate change have put pressure on everybody and the sense of urgency has shot up. Bio-based materials and bio-based solutions are very suitable to solving those problems considering they are made from renewable resources. And generally, if you're trying to make something that evolved from nature, biodegradable. Okay. I also wanted to talk about that disconnect just up front because mm-hmm. when we were preparing this, I sent you some links to some yeah. fashion-y, science-y things because my argument would be that until very recently when the sustainability conversation went more mainstream – designers in the fashion space really did not talk to scientists, if ever, certainly rarely. And I think they had a language problem. They just didn't speak the same language. Maybe we still don't. I mean, tech, science, we start going, oh, no, hang on, we're all about the look and feel of something. Well, I wouldn't put it all on fashion. And, you know, it's been an incredible challenge also getting broad groups of scientists to think in terms of fashion. There's a lot of qualitative aspects that are that we still don't understand on the technical side. Drape is a very challenging problem. How do you engineer for drape? Now, there's a lot of things that go into that, but getting 
a scientific team to understand those qualities, and that's what a designer is looking for, is in and of itself its own challenge, and that's something we've worked through heavily at Bolt Threads. I've found over the past decade or so that designers are far more interested because there's a forum to talk about it, far more interested in getting to know the details uh, than they were when we started. Yeah, I shared with you some links. Had you ever seen them? They were his oh, Absolutely. You know, the, the concept pieces, I think people have oftentimes in the technical world have a really hard time with because just as much as in the fashion world, people are idealizing the look, the feel, their sense of of a garment on the technical side. What is what is the technological proposal here? How is this a technological advancement? Is the ideal whether or not that actually makes sense as a product? The links that I shared with you that were for two shows from Hassan Chalai and from the past, uh, I think it's like 2003 and 2007. One is the animatronic stresses at the end of his uh, celebrating 100 years mm-hmm. of fashion show. We'll share a link. It's awesome. Had you mm-hmm. seen that before? Because he's someone who can... Uh, has long married very intellectual, serious ideas about culture with some techie, sciencey stuff with fashion. It's not common. I had not seen that before, and it was it was phenomenal to watch, particularly because when you say what does technology and fashion mean, it used to mean to people it meant wearables. So basically, how do you make clothes that sense? How do you make clothes that are basically going to become a second utilitarian skin? Or in this case, animatronic clothes that basically shift and morph shape. Or And you're thinking of that as being something similar to the Fitbit. It's a kind of gadget almost. It conveys style, though. That's what I find interesting. Style, which is a form of expression. I read recently someone said, your clothing is a way to express yourself without speaking. You once said in a talk that I watched that you gave at a conference, I think, but you said, when you consider what nature does elegantly, I think that's pretty humbling. You were talking about being inspired by the way that nature functions, but let's unpack that. What do you think is so elegant about the way that nature is designed and what can biology teach us about materials? When you look at the examples from nature of the materials, the skins, the the external appearances these things are evolved and they repair, self-repair, and they have functionality. Look at an octopus and its camouflage. It can camouflage both in texture and color. Now we talk about a sci-fi future with clothing that can change on command. Maybe you could design your clothing on a computer and the next day it just looks like that or change it real time on your body. But we are so far from even being able to engineer that. And you look at nature and this organism that heals itself, feeds itself, sustains itself, reproduces itself, is able to have these characteristics that we can only dream of right now. I mean, the obvious example visually is a chameleon, but share some other examples. I know that you have done work with ants, right? One of my favorite examples, I haven't done the work myself, but one of my favorite examples from the academic literature is actually the silver Saharan ant, where scientists were looking at what looks like a silver almost coating shield, coat of armor, but it's actually tiny hairs that are shaped in such a way that they reflect light. And without the hairs, the ants would be nearly 10 degrees hotter. And how hot is it out there? It's obviously like ridiculous. It's ridiculous in the middle of the desert. (laughs) So these hairs have actually evolved to keep the ants cooler in their natural environment. So I like to imagine if you could make garments with these specialty type fibers, imagine how much more functional your garments could be. I think this whole podcast should just be 
hey, David, share elegant examples <laughs> of nature being really fantastic. Because there's so many, right? Just in terms of, think of some more. We can go on and on. Go I mean, on. The, I mean, Speedo does a lot of research in this area in terms of the hydrodynamics of fish scales and shark scales. Really? How do you copy those patterns in order to make a less drag-inducing wetsuit or swimsuit? You know, to go back to spider silk, whereas often people quote the Spider-Man silk that they think of the super strong silk. But um, from the comic. You from mean. the comic. Yeah. The silk that people don't talk about is an incredibly stretchy one like spandex. And that is in the center of the web and it absorbs the impact of a bug hitting right. the web. So who figured out spider silk's properties? So it's strong. Mm -hmm. You're now talking about it's really stretchy. There's one that's really stretchy, yes. Oh, some of them. They, yeah, so okay. the spider makes six different types of silk. So just think about that. You know, it takes us so much work to get different blends of fibers and put them. One organism makes six different fibers. I'm holding up my finger. So one, okay. One so within the one guy, yeah. I'm actually an arachnophobe, BTW. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> we're not looking at any pictures One here. gal, actually. I have to say, never Google David. <laughs> pictures come up. <laughs> uh, but okay, these properties, strong. Some of them are stretchy, mm. biodegradable. Biodegradable. So I learned from you, antimicrobial. Are they all or some or can be? Almost all of them. They're not necessarily antimicrobial, but they don't grow bacteria. Some kill bacteria, but they don't grow bacteria. See, this is where the lingo is tripping. Uh, yes, up, right? exactly. I mean, it's almost as complex once you start going, what does sustainable mean? <laughs> We've done uh, we yeah, do entire shows about that. Okay, so bolt threads became famous for its spider silk. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that means, what that is. So when we started, we, and there were three of us, we set out to make scalable amounts of spider silk fibers. We did not at that point know what we were going to do with it. We very naively thought, we'll figure this out. If we make it, someone will come. And as we started the scientific process, the engineering of the material and the scale up, we fell back onto a very simple concept at the time, which was silkworm silk already exists in the world. So there is a market for silk. If we can make a spider silk that acts like silkworm silk, then maybe we have an introduction into market and then we can start adding properties, make it easy care. This is actually a little bit unusual because it was three of you. So your business partners, Dan and Ethan, were working on this while you were unbeknownst to one another. Who on earth starts thinking about this stuff? It's quite weird. I mean, I get that you're working as scientists and you're looking at nature, but why spiders? So it is actually a very coincidental story, a very serendipitous story. I was working at UC Berkeley in graduate school, and it was a time when the idea of biomimetics, what can we learn from nature, was really taking off. And just as a matter of curiosity, the question of how do spiders make silk became a fascination of mine. And I was fortunate that there was a decent body of literature and, you know, a dozen researchers out there studying spider silk. It's an extraordinary material, and it's filled with questions. Why has no one been able to mimic it? Why has no one been able to produce it? And why has no one been able to farm spiders if they want to? So there are all these questions. It feels inaccessible. And it so happened that while I was studying the material science, because that just happened to be my interest, I found that part fascinating. Dan and Ethan, my co-founders, were at UC San Francisco, and they were studying protein production systems. Basically, how do we engineer a microbe 
to make proteins for large-scale biotechnology solutions. And they decided that they were going to try to make spider silk, the protein, the precursor to the fiber, because it would be a cool story. But spider silk in every which way broke their system. And they became more fascinated and obsessed with the ideas of how do we solve this spider silk problem than how do we build our system. Someone introduced us and we were working on two halves of the same problem. And so we started hanging out. Okay, you weren't the first people to ever consider extracting the silk from spiders because you and I were talking about this the other day. It's a famous thing. I'm not sure if listeners have come across the example of the golden spider silk cape that was first shown at the V&A. It was in 2012 and it was a textile designer and some other guy. They were called Simon Piers and Nicholas Godley. Simon Piers had been in Madagascar where he'd learnt that there had this small and obviously weird tradition of trying to extract the silk from spiders there. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, this had happened on a very small scale. There's one season a year, they take these spiders, which are big buggers. I was really scared, like big as your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Don't Google it. Google the cape. And they milk them by hand. Now, no one explains how that works. (laughs) We're going to get you to do it. But this cape is an extraordinary thing that was then shown at the Met, right? You've seen it. Yes, it's gorgeous. They, and they did a phenomenal job in terms of the intricate details, in terms of the actual textile design. I highly recommend Googling spider silk tapestry. Fun fact, it took the silk from 23,000 spiders to weave 25 grams of the silk. And there are 1.5 kilograms of silk in this cape, so imagine. And these guys said no spiders were harmed. They returned them to the Madagascan rainforest. And then Piers was saying, yeah, they do bite. And he had a bit of a scar on his neck. Um, <laughs> They will bite if they feel threatened. Otherwise, spiders are quite friendly. But these are huge things in the Madagascan forest. That is not what you let loose in your office and tried to encourage to live in hula hoops on your ceiling. Uh, Yes, very, very similar spiders. Yeah, golden orb weaving spiders. Very close in size. Just easier to get spiders from Florida than Madagascar. I've got my gob open because in my mind I thought they were tiny. No. Your listeners can't see uh, the size of my hand. Anyone about, in Australia is like, whatever. Yeah, yeah, a gold knob is nothing. Uh, yes. But so. But big for the United States. Tell us what you did. So at that point, in the very beginning, because we were still trying to build up our technology and we had a mismatch, we needed to make the protein to solve how to spin the fiber. And so Dan needed to figure out how to engineer this protein production. And I needed to figure out how to make a fiber. But in the meantime, all I had were silk fibers that I could get from spiders. So we actually found someone, it's as arbitrary as it sounds, who would send us spiders so that we could actually get them to make webs and study the silk. And we were told that if you have hula hoops, the spiders will crawl into the center of the hula hoops and make a beautiful web and you can feed them crickets or whatever they want to eat. But they did not do that. Rather, they just climbed all over our office space, uh, made webs every which way in every corner, and they actually are quite calm. They just stay there and just wait for something to go into their web for them to eat. How many? I mean, over the course of time, we had hundreds. And who's collecting them? So what, you've got someone in Florida just going picking them out of the trees. Is it cruel? It's as ridiculous sounding as that, yes, we've got someone in Florida going out and picking them from the trees. We don't use spiders anymore. I know, but I'm interested in the practicalities. So is it cruel? 
Is it cruel? Um, we're not doing anything to intentionally distress the spiders. How do you milk a spider? Spider milking... <laughs> the term milking, I don't know exactly where that came from. I don't know who originated that. But you essentially hold down the spider and just slowly reel out little bits of silk. There is... They hate you. Yeah, probably. <laughs> there are historical documents from, I think, 18th century or 17th century France that actually have, someone has actually drawn up various contraptions where they were trying to hold down a spider so they could extract the silk to make spider silk clothing for royalty. So we might imagine that forever humans have looked at these things and gone, that's interesting. How could that be something we could make woven items of? Oh, absolutely. There is a tribe still around that uses sticks with spider webs with flies on it as a way of making netting that to then catch fish with. Uh, very Shrek-like, like the movie Shrek where he makes the cotton candy with the spider web. Are you and I was like, whatever you do, do not say to David, did you love Spider-Man as a child? <laughs> I get that a lot. I know Every you Halloween. Know, which is why I didn't want to. <laughs> All right, I'll say this instead if I can't ask mm. you about Spider-Man. We are quite messy at home. Mm -hmm. And this year on Halloween, my husband said, ah, our decorations are finally back in mood. <laughs> <laughs> the spider webs all over our front doors. We just leave them there all year until they're on trend in October. Yes, absolutely. And you know, they, they eat mosquitoes and all those other pesky critters that fly around. All right, fuck it. I'm going to ask you, did you love Spider-Man as a kid? You know, I he wasn't my favorite. I liked Spider-Man a lot, but... What's interesting about spiders and spider silk is there's a community of spider silk researchers that don't really know the spider researchers. And there's a community of spider researchers that don't really know the spider silk researchers. Scientists and Exactly. So who was your favorite? So I was a big fan of the Hulk and Wolverine. Okay, fine. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so hang on. You've got all these spiders in your office. Mm -hmm. You're able to extract the natural web from some of these spiders and study it. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, how did you work out how to synthesize it and turn it into this, I'm going to say, wonder fabric? And also, why is it a wonder fabric? Yeah, um, the long story short is that once you take the gene sequence, so the actual letters of the DNA that encode for the protein that makes up spider silk, after you make enough of them, enough different variants, we started to understand the template of how do you engineer a protein that makes a fiber? And that's what's critical there because your body is 30% protein. You've got protein in your muscles, but you've got protein in your blood. That The one in your blood carries oxygen. The muscles exert force. Very different molecules, but they're made up of the same, basically, Legos. So we started learning how do you arrange these Legos in a way that makes a fiber. So you figured out how to mimic it synthetically. Right. Now what? The next challenge is scaling up enough to make enough, so scaling up enough protein to make enough fiber to start doing product development. So and just let's remember that those two nutters who made the golden cape, it mm. took them, maybe I didn't tell you this, but 23,000 spiders to make 25 grams of silk, the whole thing took them eight years. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that is because you can't farm spiders. Spiders are territorial. They'll attack each other. They'll eat each other. You know, they're cannibalistic versus a silkworm farm where the silkworms just crawl all over each other. That's why spider silk, again, is so hard to get. You can't rear it in any agriculture, high-density agricultural way. 
which is why biotechnology solutions are particularly well-suited to make these fibers, spider silk-based or silkworm-silk-based fibers, in a large-scale way. So the process in of itself is we take that DNA that encodes the fiber we like that we've designed, plop it into yeast, brew that yeast up like beer in large vats. These things are like the size of grain silos. We then purify the silk and extrude it into a fiber. So once we had enough of that material, you start doing product development. And that's where sort of the painful but fun story is, or funny story, I should say. That's where the painful but funny story is, in that spider silk has this feature that no one talks about, which is the fact that whereas it's very strong, the strong one is very strong, it also shrinks. So whereas your wool oh, shrinks, yeah, you me this. yes, yeah, your you wool shrinks five to ten percent or so for a variety of reasons. Spider silk shrinks about fifty percent of its length. So you make a tie, and then you make a tie, you get it wet, and it's and it, half it's, a tie. It's like if you've ever played with those shrinky dinks as a kid, where you draw something on a piece of plastic, put it in the oven, and it shrinks down. You know that's what my have, parents. Yeah, that's what my parents used to give us when we had the babys- babysitters over it's like that and so the next step becomes oh well that wasn't intentional and that's not something you can sell <laughs> so we have to start engineering out those properties can we tell the story that you heard as a rumor about the golden cape or is that off the record i can tell i can tell the shrinking story in fact just demonstrating this in the real world uh, i learned not too long ago that that golden cape we were just talking about was wrinkled as it was transferred from one museum to another. And when someone tried to iron it, the steam shrunk up a whole section of this intricate design work. Oh, my God. Okay, that's just, do Mm. not want to be that person with the steamer. So how do you combat the shrinkage? So that's a matter of re-engineering the protein and redesigning again on that template from which we've learned how to control shrinkage to specified amounts so that it's not 50%. The reason the mechanism for shrinking was not what we thought, which is why we didn't expect the outcome we got. Often scientists labor away on these projects in a lab and they never come to market. It's important to find the right partners to be able to actually produce this in the real world. And you worked with Stella McCartney. How did that change the game for you? Working with Stella was a big sea change for us. When we started, we had a very hard time communicating with brands and working with brands um, in terms of developing partnerships, largely because at the time, and bear in mind this was 2010 thereabouts, material innovation was largely expected to be about cost reduction and supply chain engineering. And so you know, you hear often in the Bay Area, you know, people talk to your customers. What do your customers want? What do your customers want? Well, I'll tell you what my customers wanted. They wanted cheaper materials. And, you know, I was pulling my hair out at the time going, I can create something that's performance. And in fact, we even pitched back then that the material was green and vegan because green was the term at the time. And we were told by certain investors, you know, no one cares. Wow. Don't talk about it. Actually, don't even say it. Don't it say it. No, it was don't don't ever talk about green. No, no one will pay for green. Fast forward to today, sustainability has become in a category of performance attributes, and now we can actually start working, investing in that more wholeheartedly, and customers who are willing to pull there. Now, I give 
to go back to Stella, I give her huge credit because when we first discussed the idea of approaching luxury, we were advised that we were we were techno. We were techno and people wanted heritage. Silk, as in silkworm silk, was heritage. Well, luxury. And we luxury. Of, and, um, heritage is actually the magic of this stuff mm. because it's the story, you know, oh, the very old Italian mills right. or this brand's been around for 200 years making silk in Lyon or all this. It feels like the fabric of royalty and the fabric of 50s couture. Right. And that's so different from the tech space. Tech, we think sporty, less fashion mm. less luxury, right? So you're bringing those two things together. And Stella did that for you, I think, very cleverly because anyone who'd never considered biotech but loved clothes then saw that very charismatic yellow dress and then learned the story behind it. So what do you think is the power of that storytelling? I mean, it's more, it's to do with the fact that a good story is always going to get people to listen. Mm. I'm going to listen to the spider milking story, but I don't covet it. I don't want to wear it. It's not glamorous. Right. Whereas Stella made it cool and glamorous, right? Well, Stella herself and her brand are cool and glamorous. And even I recall distinctly from her visit, you know, she came and saw our scientist labs and she was extremely excited. And she loved that everything we talked about was inspired by nature, uh, which is where we get most of our ideas. How do we build, look at nature, learn things and build from nature? And she herself found that very compelling. And with that notion told the story, it's not about replacing nature. It's about learning from nature and building forward towards a better world with it. But why mess with nature? Isn't nature already doing its job perfectly? Um, It was for a time when, you know, we were smaller groups of people, smaller populations, and it was serving the needs as best as we can imagine it. But the materials we use now are hardly natural in many ways. Yes, they come from nature, but if you look at leather and recognizing that nearly a majority of it is non-natural chemicals to get it to behave in the way that it does. The dyes we use and the chemistries we use to dye, whether it be natural materials, wool, wool coatings, cotton dyeing, all of that is trying to add chemistry onto nature to make nature acceptable to our standards versus the ability to engineer and design towards environmentally friendly solutions. But you're saying we're already messing with nature, even when we talk about natural inadverted commas fibres. Absolutely. Okay, you say that when you talked about vegan and green, no one cared, but now they do. Why is this innovation actually more sustainable or can we even use the word sustainable Mm. full stop? What makes your spider silk sustainable? So with the spider silk, our goal was to make a new biodegradable fibre to penetrate the fibers market and start replacing some of these uh, petroleum-based materials that have really contributed to a lot of the non-biodegradable landfill waste, microfiber pollution, and they're just extractive processes uh, that are harming our environment. The challenge being polyester is so dirt cheap and the industry has become very constrained by those those costs there. And actually, if you look at the history or the origins of nylon and then polyester, they came out to be an alternative to silk. When you couldn't afford to buy silk stockings, you then were able to get nylon stockings. Well, it was like a wonder alternative, wasn't it? Price pointed. And also at that time, considered to be the tech side, the science side was very exciting for people. Oh, absolutely. But basically much cheaper than silk. Yeah, polyester is dirt cheap. It's going to be an incredibly difficult fibre to 
displace unless people make a conscious decision that they're just going to absorb the cost. It is optimized for minimal cost at okay. all steps of the process. But this spider silk, it's biodegradable. It's produced using only essentially yeast, yeast sugar, water. water. Right. If you don't dye it, then right. presumably it's entirely natural and can return to nature. You did talk about how it was able to be coloured at the production stage. How does that work? So you're saving water on traditional dyeing processes if you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of our original uh, pitches in terms of going into the apparel industry versus other things you could do with the fiber was the fact that silk has all these challenges associated. It takes up dye really well, but it doesn't have good color fastness and it uses a ton of water to dye. It's not machine washable in terms it gets brittle over time. It tends to crystallize, so it gets stiffer and stiffer. Is that why? Yeah. And Is that why we have to dry clean it? Exactly, yeah. And there's, there's, no, but that's interesting to me because I always want to hand wash silk, but it does change the feel yeah. of it. So is it molecular? It's molecular. There are some components of any residual uh, of the Saracen, the glue, also spreading out on the fabric and making it stiffer but the fiber itself will continue to crystallize over time and get stiffer and stiffer and stiffer particularly with salts and and other components in your washing liquids but you can color your fiber while you're producing it before it's spun right exactly so you know if you look at that uh Stella dress and the beanies we launched, all of that was what's done with quote dope dyeing. So silk where that the phrase. That's the phrase. Silk where dope, man. Is that why? <laughs> <laughs> the solution that you turn into a fiber is called dope. Okay. That's spinning dope. I don't know who came up with that term. I like it. <laughs> and so you add the dye directly in there, which is a huge reduction. So in. what kind of percentage of water? I know it depends because it depends on your processes, but what sort of reduction are you potentially looking at then? You know, it all comes down to what the product wants to be, but really, ultimately, once you start getting away from watering and growing mulberry leaves in order to grow silkworms, all the water usage so the there... The water act- footprints, not just the dye, yeah. back to the plant. Yes, Everyone heard of bolt threads through Stella and spider silk, but now you're working on this. Are we even allowed to say vegan leather alternative? Because I feel like the leather industry is trying to gag us from even using yeah. that word. But a material that can be used as a substitute for leather that's entirely derived from natural sources. It's called Milo. Yes. Which, by the way, is the name of a kind of milky drink that kids are raised on in Australia. I learned that afterwards. But we use an I. You've got a Y. <laughs> Yes, we've got a Y, Milo, the M-Y-L-O. When we went from just making spider silk fibers as a technology into we really think we're going to address materials in consumer apparel, the tone of where we were headed as a company changed. It meant we were not just a spider silk technology company, but we were really a consumer materials discovery and delivery company. We want to make products with these materials. And so leather was an obvious addition Um, Why? Because it was clear that we could make leather without animals. And it wasn't clear necessarily at the time that anybody other than vegans cared, even though we knew back of the envelope this would there would be a huge sustainability benefit. But just like I was saying with polyester exists and is dirt cheap, Pleather exists and is pretty darn cheap. So would there be a pull for this? Would there be a demand? And after we started, 
what happened that was so significant in the industry was that the attitude around leather went from we want to get out of leather because it's a vegan issue or an animal cruelty issue to livestock and cattle farming, whether it be for meat or for leather, is a climate change issue. So the alternative, pleather, which is plastic-based, is extractive from non-renewable resources. So it became we want no dead cows, we want no dead dinosaurs. (laughs) <laughs> so how do we use biology to find a solution there? Okay, that word, pleather, mm-hmm. it was a word that actually was in common use a while ago, but we've now moved towards, as fashion loves to do, mm-hmm. kind of better marketing word, and people mm-hmm. call it faux leather. Faux leather. But it's basically plastic. Right. What is it? It is plastic. I mean, it's a textile made with various you know, vinyl, polyurethane, various polymers that's well-designed to behave very similarly to leather, produced commodities in uh, huge volumes. Now, the problem with that is then it's non-biodegradable, again, petroleum-based, which means it's not from renewable resources. And so in the end, its end-of-life qualities are very environmentally destructive. That's not even counting all the challenges with chemistries in the leather process and all that. Just the base materials that make up faux leather. I would refer listeners to the episode with Philip Limbry in which we unpack all of the problems with conventional leather production and animal agriculture. And also just to say that if you want to go back to series three and listen to the episode with Claire Bergkamp, she talks about how Stella McCartney, for example, doesn't use vinyl because of how toxic it is. And they've been developing various other kind of PU alternatives that are slightly more environmentally friendly. But you, David, are using mushrooms. Mushrooms, Basically growing it. Yes, absolutely. And... What you find, actually, if you look in the forest floor, underneath the dirt, in the dirt, is that mushrooms form this wide network of roots, intertwined, entangled. And if you can actually grow those in a laboratory setting in a way that causes them to grow into a controlled thickness and controlled size, you get a sheet that's very similar in properties to raw hide but entirely grown from mushrooms. It's so interesting. When I first started looking into this, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what mycelium was. Mycelium, that's the name, yeah. And so what does that word exactly mean? Mycelium refers to the massive network of these roots in which there's a nutrient exchange, communication between the fungus and just the spread of the fungal organism throughout the forest, for example, the forest floor. We're sort of only at the early stages of really understanding the complexity of how mycelium operates underneath our soils and in our forest floors, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. And it's like a mystery. It's a mystery. Um, researchers keep uncovering how these broad networks of mycelium and different ways they interact, interact with trees, interact with other plants. Um, it's quite fascinating. I've copped a feel of your mycelium-based mm. material, and it is very interesting because texture-wise, I'm doing this with my hands, it's a bit, I can't believe I said copped a feel. Obviously, <laughs> I've been married to an Australian for too long. Uh, it's kind of spongy. Right. It's um, It feels a bit like chamois leather, can I say? Chamois? Like, you know, you, chamois leather is like what you polished car windscreens with you know um, oh um, geez i don't but it feels leathery it feels leathery yeah it does and yet this is entirely natural and grown in a controlled circumstances obviously so you can grow this as a sheet 
mm-hmm. and then you can obviously treat it and you're still tanning it. Right. So we tan it in the sense that the term means that we have to process it because it actually comes out as a foam. And so we compress it and treat it to be like leather. There's no point in us tanning it in a way that uses the conventional chemistries that we're trying to get away from as an industry. So things like chromium salts. Chromium salts, absolutely. So we're actually working with uh, Heller to do major leather tannery in terms of developing sustainable chemistries and environmentally friendly chemistries for our material. Hellup is a European-based leather tannery, and they have been really great about working with new process, developing new processes for our material specifically. What are the drawbacks then? Does it perform as well as leather? Are you still in the early stages of figuring that out? How durable is it? What about that stuff? Absolutely. There's still a ton of development to do to hit all the application spaces of leather. We often get uh, people asking us for their motorcycle outfits. And I said, oh, you know, you? yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, the heat resistance and abrasion resistance are things we haven't optimized for. Every different partner or consumer has different requirements and we engineer towards those. But I'm not ready yet to put someone in a right. motorcycle in a Milo outfit and say, OK, go, you know, see what happens. But are you confident? This is very new in mm-hmm. terms of bringing it to market. Are you confident that this could be a real game changer when it comes to animal derived leather? Absolutely. And what gives me such confidence is knowing how we can scale it and knowing the path to scale and the costs and the cost reductions possible. Without that, I would hesitate to say this can make an impact, but I truly believe, knowing all the numbers behind it, that we can deliver this and make a big dent. David, why do you do what you do? Waste is something that's always bothered me. It feels inefficient and it feels like it's material stuff going to bad use. And I hate the destruction of the environment associated with plastics. At the same time, I look at what nature's evolved over millions and millions or billions of years. It's been a long time of slow change towards incredible outcomes. And I fear how quickly we destroy that because we continue to discover things to this day that society has yet to even conceive of that exists in nature in very complex ways. Well, we've These, destroyed half of it before yeah. we've ever been able to study it. If you look at, for example, even just medicines that may be hiding in rainforests that no one's even discovered. Absolutely. That frightens me. And so that that is almost a personal concern of mine. Now, the history of the company, when we started, it was really about technology. Now, we knew in, in our personal lives... We did various things, but the company was really about technology. We decided we were going to go into apparel textiles, and we started understanding all the environmental destruction and challenges. It's such a complex mix. Human rights, everything you see going on back there. It suddenly became this, this door was open that we couldn't shut because it felt like, wait, we can build technologies. That's what we're good at. And... We particularly can build biological technologies. That's what we're good at. And we can see answers to a lot of the problems with our technologies. And so suddenly that became our broader mission and focus and a passion because we felt like we can actually do good with the technologies that we were sort of just playing with by, to start out with in graduate school. But I happen to know something about you. You're not that scientist who is obsessed with the questioning and the why. I admire and romanticize and I know many of them, the scientists who just want to know why 
to the answer the questions of the universe. How does biology work in every little detail? And in some yeah. ways, I long to be, I, I sort of romanticize it. I long to be that person, but I get frustrated very quickly because I want to deliver something. I want to make something. I want it to have an impact. What I've learned as an entrepreneur is if people aren't buying it, you know, you're not going to have an impact. And then a lot of people have to buy it to have a big impact. And so now my sights have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of, you know, when I was saying, why do I think Milo can succeed? I see the demand. Mm. You come from a long line of academics. I do. So not a long line of business builders or company founders. My father and his family, academics, very, very studious family. In what field? Political science, international relations, history. As a kid, I loved anything that was technologically advanced. I loved understanding how it worked. Any technological novelty, I wanted to take apart every toy I got. I wanted, I still remember my sister had a Barbie that had a shower that actively sprayed water. And God, Barbie had everything. And I and I snuck down to the basement and I disassembled it because I wanted to know how that shower worked. I was just that kid. I liked Transformers. I liked mechanical things. And I just kept going with that. Um, what caught me was when I first learned about DNA, it was very computational in nature, very code-like. And I thought, oh, this is just like the stuff that I'm teaching myself in computer science. And so I started studying DNA more and went into a field called bioinformatics that was applying computer algorithms to understand DNA. And it all Is it the of- patterns? Is it the, the fascination with the potential patterning of how... I don't know just it's, how sequences work. What is it's it? the very deterministic nature of it. It's the notion that it. you can unlock it, that you can control it, that you can engineer it, that really grips me and that you can design it. You know, when I look at the world, I see an ecosystem. And so when I look to what does the future look like and how do science and technology and fashion intersect, And I see fashion as a way in which people not just clothe themselves, protect themselves from the elements, be comfortable, but also express themselves. And then how can we do that for a growing population in a way that allows all of those things, better ways to express yourself while at the same time, better ways to protect yourself and be comfortable while at the same time ensuring that this ecosystem we live in isn't saddled with an excess amount of waste. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go away because everything is just fine. My friends don't feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests, and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? 
Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you.